Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to go all the way to verse 15 today. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, I'm so excited to begin uh, this brand new series in the book of Mark. Now, we will be in the book of Mark all the way until July, okay? So strap in uh, because it's going to be a long and fun journey. We will take a little break, like right in between. If you don't know this, Mark has two parts to it. There's part one of Mark, and then there's part two of Mark. And so right in the middle between the parts, we're going to take a four-week break leading up to Easter, Um, So before we jump in, though, to the book of Mark, I want to talk about those scripture journals that you have in front of you. What are they? What is their purpose? If you don't have, is there anyone here who does not have one? If you do not have a scripture journal currently, we got one up here. Where is, I've got a few people designated. Oh, Danny's running up with his. Thank you, Danny. Pass that off. This is discipleship right, happening right in front of your face. Um, so if you don't have one, there are some back in the welcome area, uh, but I encourage you um, to get them. So um, here's the deal with these scripture journals. On one page of that journal is the scriptures, and on the other page uh, is a blank space. Now, you are free to do whatever that um, space that you want. Circle, underline, ask questions, draw pictures um, about the text, not of anything else, Um, but draw pictures, I mean, write questions. And the hope is that as we walk through the book of Mark, you can really engage with the text. And in between Sundays, between when we gather on Sundays and in between uh, your home group, my hope is that you will engage with God's word on a day-to-day basis. That my prayer is that this journal, this scripture journal, will position us as a church to be participants and the work and wonder of God day in and day out. And here's why I specifically use that word participants, because it's so tempting for us uh, to walk into this place or walk into home group as consumers, uh, where we're looking to, to get something. We're, we're, 
the church is selling something, and if what we're selling is good enough, then you'll buy it. That's not how it works, though, that we are called as a people to be participants in God's work. And I hope that these journals will at least help you, position you to engage with God in prayer, engage with God's word, and engage with one another as you work through the text together. And so my hope is in home groups is that you've been thinking on, meditating, and drinking in the word of God before you show up to your home group. That all throughout the week, God has been working on you on what the purpose of the text is. That you would say to God, hey God, with this journal, I want you to grow me to love what you love, to think what you think, to really understand your word. So if you have any questions about those journals, please let me know. Um, Home group leaders, I would go ahead and grab a few extra on your way out uh, because we don't want anyone that isn't here today that comes to home group to miss out on those. So go ahead and uh, grab a few of those. Now, here's a question some of you might be asking. Why the book of Mark? Why in the world are we studying uh, the book of Mark? My simplest answer to that is the book of Mark gives you just straight up unfiltered Jesus, okay? (laughs) Just all caps, Jesus. Like Mark was the first gospel written. Matthew and Luke probably had Mark sitting in front of them when they wrote their books because 60% of Mark is quoted in Luke. 91% of Mark is quoted in Matthew. So um, the other two, Matthew and Luke, they added more commentary around the book of Mark. Things like the genealogy in Matthew are the fertility issues of Zacharias and Elizabeth. John, for example, after seeing all three of them, he just backs up to the beginning of time, right? (laughs) Goes all the way to the beginning. And Mark is like, okay, I ain't got time for details, all right? Mark just goes straight after. I mean, today, for example, we get no background on Jesus. He just starts his gospel with, Jesus is the son of God, boom, and we're off today. I mean, we're going straight into, we get unfiltered, raw Jesus. Now, another interesting thing that I love about the book of Mark is Mark himself. Mark is just a normal dude, just like us. The the New Testament, I don't know if you feel like this sometimes, but the New Testament can seem like it's filled with these like spiritual giants, Paul and John, Mark is much less, much less noteworthy. So you first meet Mark in Acts chapter 12, and the church is meeting at his, his house, which is interesting because we learn in Acts chapter 12 that the entire church at that time can fit in one person's house. And more specifically, it was Mark's mom's house, right? So Mark is living at home with his mom, which was traditional during that time. That was normal. Don't pile on Mark for living with his mom. A lot of you live with your moms for a long time. Don't worry about it. Um, But I think that's funny because I can just picture like, I don't know, this is where my mind went this week. Like Mark is just sitting upstairs with Peter and John and he just starts yelling at mom. Mom, get us some PB&Js, right? Like, I, I don't know why, but I think that's funny. Highly doubtful that that ever happened, right? Um, but I just think that's funny. Um, in Acts 13, Mark meets Paul, okay? So Mark, Paul, and Barnabas go out on the first missionary journey. So that's pretty cool, right? I mean, Mark was one of the first missionaries ever. Well, it would be cool, except Mark doesn't even last to the halfway point, 
All right, he doesn't even last to city number two. Mark bails on Paul and Barnabas. And it's actually, if you read through Acts, it's a bad deal. Like so bad that when it got time for missionary journey number two, Paul says to Barnabas, or Barnabas says to Paul, hey, let's go out again and can we bring Mark? And Paul responds by saying, no, Mark deserted us. We're not gonna bring him. And Paul and Barnabas get into such an, a massive argument that they actually split up. And some of you know this. So the OGs of missions split up because of Mark. Now, another interesting thing about Mark is that it is believed that Mark and Barnabas were cousins. So in Paul's final greetings in the book of Colossians, he says in Colossians 4.10, he says, Arisicus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, I don't know if that's why Barnabas decided to fight for Mark, to, to uh, advocate on his behalf, but for whatever reason, Barnabas said, no, I'm not giving up on Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. And what you see in Mark is actually a beautiful redemption story in the person of Mark. Um, in 1 Peter, Peter refers to Mark as his son. He says, Mark is like a son to me. And church history tells us that the book of Mark is actually just Mark sitting at the feet of Peter and listening to Peter recount the story of Jesus. Which makes sense, right? If you know Peter, he's so scatterbrained. He, one minute he's here, the next minute he's here. That's how this book is. I mean, it's a scatterbrained book. I mean, it's boom, boom, boom. And you're like, where, how did we get here, right? That's Mark, and that's Mark sitting at the feet of Peter, listening to Peter recount the story of Christ. And if you read Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts, and you read the book, and I encourage you to do this this week, and read the book of Mark, the book of Mark is just Peter's sermon outline. That's all it is you can see the thread of the outline. And so, um, and over time, God grew Mark as he sat at the feet of Peter and God began to restore Mark within the church. Said Timothy 4.11, Paul says, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry. And the last thing I'll say about Mark is that Mark includes himself in his own gospel. I don't know if you knew that. He's in two verses. So right after Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets arrested, and then we get this beautiful text in Mark 14, 51, right? It says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is Mark, right? While on one hand it's funny, on the other hand it's kind of embarrassing, right? I mean, that, that's incredibly embarrassing. Mark bailed on Jesus. Now, so did the rest of the disciples. But Mark, I think, Mark wants to be sure that we know his redemption. When things got tough, he bailed. And I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I think Mark is reminding not only us, but himself of who he used to be, that he once bailed, but in Christ there is redemption. And I think that's beautiful because that's all of us. We're like Mark. We're broken. We all have shame. And Jesus has redeemed all of us. So with all that said, let's jump into the introduction of the book of Mark, starting in verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you are a Jewish reader, you would stop right there. You would stop right there and you would go, wait, what did he just say? 
I mean, Mark wastes no time in this book, right? That, that, that's one of the reasons I love this book is because Mark doesn't mess around. I mean, he's tr- throwing truth bombs all over the place. To the original readers, that word gospel would have been understood differently than how we understand the word gospel today. Like we typically understand that word gospel to mean like a genre of book, for example, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. Or sometimes we use that word gospel as something we need to be, right? Like, hey, you need to have a gospel-centered life. You ever said that, right? Or you need to be speaking gospel truth, or you simply might look at someone who might be pestering you or who might be annoying, annoying and you might just say, brother, you need the gospel, right? I mean, we kind of use it uh, differently than they would have understood it. It would have meant something different to the Roman, and it would have meant something different to the Hebrew. For the Roman, it meant joyful tidings or good news. So when an emperor was born or rose to power, there was a group of people called evangels, evangels. They were heralders. Their role was to herald or proclaim an announcement. So these evangels would travel across the empire and they would herald. They would come into your city and they would yell, gospel, gospel, joyful tidings. I have an announcement. We have an inscription from 9 BC of the emperor Octavian that says the birthday of the God was for the world. The beginning of the gospel is a Roman literature. The beginning of the gospel that has been proclaimed on his account. So for the Roman, it meant an historical event has occurred and it changes everything. Something has just happened and you should pay attention because your world just changed. Now look at what Mark does. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. An event has occurred. Someone has showed up, joyful tidings. I have an announcement. And the announcement is Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now to the Hebrew, it meant joyful tidings. It meant good news. But that word gospel is taking a theme that is found all throughout the scriptures. That in this moment, it's referring primarily back to the book of Isaiah. So if you don't know anything about the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, they are at a low point in their history. The people of God have rejected him. They have pursued other gods and God told them, hey, if you keep doing this, I'm gonna send you to the capital of gods. I'm gonna send you to Babylon. And it's in Babylon when they're in exile, when the prophet Isaiah begins to herald And you'll see it, he says, good news, good news, good news. And so while God's people were suffering in in exile, the prophet would say, hey, there is good news for you. God is coming, God is coming. And that book translated into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you see that specific word throughout the book, gospel, gospel, gospel. So to the Hebrew, that word gospel, meant there is a day coming when God is coming for us. He will bear his holy arm. He will set you free. He will bless you. He will save you. If you go on in verse two in Mark one, he begins to quote from uh, different parts of the Old Testament like Malachi and, Old Testament, and, and Isaiah. He says, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And if you take that second part, verse three, and you read it directly where it's found in Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, it's gonna be on the screen. I mean, it's stunning. Here's what it says. In Isaiah 43, he says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then look at verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah says, someone's coming. A voice cries. Mark says, he has come. Gospel. The king has arrived. The unapproachable has become approachable. The glory of the Lord has been revealed in Jesus. So for the original reader, these first few verses were a shock to the soul. I mean, you'll see Mark do that all throughout the book. He will say things that are so precise and so stunning that they're meant to shock you. They're meant to make you stop reading and go, whoa, what did he just say? And the shocking thing here is in these first few verses is that God has come. What God had said he was going to do in the Old Testament, he has done. God has become a man and his name is Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And this introduction, it's, make, it's supposed to make you go, so what happened? What happened when he showed up. This is a huge announcement. God has come. He's put on flesh. You are supposed to wonder, what's going to happen next? What did Jesus do? What did the son of God do when he showed up? Does he ride into Jerusalem and start burning down buildings? Does he retake his kingdom? That's what you wondered if you were a Jew. What does he do? No, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to get baptized by John. And you go, what? Why? Why is he going out into the wilderness? Why is he getting baptized? He's God. Shouldn't he just be taking over at this point? Well, verses four through eight tells us that John is out baptizing in the wilderness and Jesus goes out to meet him. In fact, in verse five, it says, all kinds of people were going out to the wilderness to be baptized. It says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their Sins. And so Mark mentioning that this is being done in the wilderness is incredibly significant. That the wilderness, sometimes translated desert, was an important place all throughout the scriptures. When Moses leads the people out of Egypt, where do they go? They go into the wilderness, right? And hundreds of years later, when the people of God are, when they reject God, I mentioned this a second ago, when they reject them, when they reject God, he sends them to Babylon, and it's in Babylon when God tells them a new exodus is coming. A new exodus is coming, a time where you will go out of Babylon and you will go into the wilderness. See, when there's an exodus, there's always a wilderness. That the wilderness is this idea that you are walking away from one thing and you are walking into another. I am walking away from these gods I have been serving. I'm walking away from this system that I had bought into. I'm walking away from these things that I thought would satisfy me. I'm walking away from these things and I'm walking back into relationship with God. The wilderness was known as a place of repentance. 
because it's in repentance where God meets his people. So John the Baptist says, hey, the king is coming. I'm preparing the way. And if you want to meet him, he says, you have to come out into the wilderness. You have to come in repentance. So he says, so let me say this. As we begin this journey through Mark, one hope that I have for us this week is that we will have space to examine where our hearts are. Like, where's our hearts? What idols have we been serving without even realizing it? What sins have we been holding on to that seem so precious, they'd be so hard to give up? What, what things have we been drinking in and eating instead of drinking in the water, the living water, and the hope of Christ? I mean, we, we all have this temptation to worship the idol of self, the idol of money, the idol of greed, the idol of pride. And we build these systems in our lives that say, if I do this, if I indulge in this, then I'll be happy. God, if I reject you and if I pursue this thing, even if it's for a moment, I will have satisfaction. We build the system in our lives that says, no, 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 God, I don't want you. I want this. And it's in the wilderness where you realize just how needy you are. It's in the wilderness where you realize just how much of God you need. It's a place where you strip yourself of everything that you think makes you valuable. And it's a place where God begins to rebuild your heart and rebuild your mind, to love what he loves, to think how he thinks, because it's in the wilderness where if you're thirsty, you have to depend on him for water. If you're hungry, you have to depend on him for food. If you have a need in the wilderness, it's filled by him because that's your only option to repent and walk into new relationship with God. That's what the whole picture of baptism here is in in Mark chapter one. The way John is doing baptism here is different than anything they had experienced before. See, they would do baptisms before this. It was more like cleansings. And so for the Jew, what they would do is they would wash their hands to be cleansed from their sins. For the Gentile, they would... (laughs) They would take a bucket, fill it up with water, and they would pour the bucket over themselves because the Gentile was dirtier than the Jew. Just saying, crazy stuff. Um, And so they would do washings before this, but you would always do the washings yourself. You would always do the washings yourself. But with John, he invites them to come into the wilderness and he says, I've got to baptize you. You can't cleanse yourself. You can't do it. Someone else has to make that offering on your behalf. Someone else has to claim. And notice verse four, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance that I don't have anything to offer. I am stripping off everything that I am here in the wilderness and I am receiving in its place forgiveness It's not something that I take. I can't cleanse myself. It's something that I receive. And in baptism, you have to submit yourself to someone else as a symbol of forgiveness that comes from outside of me. Someone else cleanses me. And it's interesting that John the Baptist says in verse eight, if you jump down to verse eight, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. Now, let me, take you on a little journey real quick because you might ask, okay, what does he mean by that? 
What does he mean to say, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to take you on a journey. In the book of Hosea, all the kids are out, so I can say this. All right, we're going to talk about Hosea. (laughs) Um, In the book of Hosea, God calls the Israelites a prostitute. He says, you're married to me, but you keep sleeping with other men. In other words, you keep worshiping other idols and you keep rejecting me. And God doesn't say, well, because my people are unfaithful, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to kick them out. I'm going to divorce them. He says in Hosea 2.14, one of my favorite texts, he's, this is what he says. What does God do with his sinful bride? He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He says, I will allure you into the wilderness. And it's in that place in the wilderness where I will speak tenderly to you. I'm gentle with you and I bring the vineyards back. I bring hope and life back. And John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what happens when God meets us in the wilderness? How does he restore us? When Isaiah speaks of the wilderness, he says this in chapter 32, verse 14. So I mean, in your journal, just write Isaiah 32, 14. It says, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower, watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys. I, I love that. He's like, this place is so deserted that it's a joy for the donkeys, right? The donkey, donkeys are having the time of their lives. He says, a pasture of flocks. And then he says in verse 15, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. The picture is when the spirit comes, he breathes life into our joyless hearts and the wilderness in our souls, the picture of death, the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the field forest. So John John says, look, the water has no power for me to bring you from life to death. But the one who's coming, he's bringing the spirit. And he turns the wilderness into a fruitful field of life. And so essentially John is saying, what I'm doing now is a picture of the one who's coming, of what he's going to do. And then in verse 9, we see Jesus himself come to be baptized. That even though Jesus was free of sin, he is free of sin, he identifies with us on our behalf and he submits himself to baptism. In this whole section, verses 9 through 13, it's pretty fascinating. It's, it's, it's almost like a recreation of Genesis 1 through 3. So let me read. Let me first read verses 9 through 11, and then we'll read verses 12 and 13. I want to show you this. So it says in verse nine, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So in Jewish writings, there was only one place where the spirit of God is mentioned alongside that word dove. Um, It was in the Targums, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. 
That was the primary text that the Jewish people during this time would have read, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. And in that translation, Genesis 1-2, it says the spirit hovered over the face of the water and it translated to mean this word fluttered, that the spirit fluttered over the face of the water, given the idea that the spirit was in the form of a bird. So the spirit fluttered over the face of the water. The rabbis during this time would have translated Genesis 1-2 like this. They would have said, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove and God spoke, let there be lights. So think about this. In this moment at Jesus' baptism, you hear the father's voice, you see the son and you see the spirit fluttering like a dove. We are to be reminded at the very beginning of history, that just as the original creation of the world was a result of a triune God, the redemption of the world, the renewal of all things is beginning with who? The triune God. That just as in creation, when redemption begins, the, tri- the Trinity is there. And then immediately after his baptism, it says the spirit drove Jesus back into the wilderness. It says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering. So think about this. In Genesis, the spirit moves over the face of the water. God speaks the world into existence. Humanity is created. And what's the very next thing that happens in Genesis? Temptation, right? Satan tempts humanity. He tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. And here in Mark, you have the spirit, you have the water, God speaking, and you have the new Adam being tempted by Satan once again. And he did what Adam could not do. He did what you and I could not do. He looked in the face of temptation and instead of forsaking the father, he trusts in him. He is, do you see it? I mean, he is step by step undoing the brokenness of humanity. Where we fell, the new Adam succeeds. Faithfulness. He is sinless. And in complete Mark fashion, you have this drastic transition in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Get used to that. Mark just erupt transitions all over the place, but the stage is now set, okay? The stage is now set. Jesus walks into Galilee and he makes a proclamation. The time is fulfilled. Everything that you have, have the thing that you have been talking about since you were kids, I'm here, I'm here. And what does he tell us to do in response to his arrival? What does he tell them to do? It's, this whole, it's the whole theme of this first chapter. Repent. Repent. Walk away from the system that you've created, the things that you worship. He's essentially saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in me because I'm better. Repent and believe in this life-changing announcement. The king has arrived. So that's just the introduction, Um, we have a long way to go, but here's my encouragement for us as a faith family this week. My suspicion is that there are many of us here who have some sin 
Uh, maybe we don't even realize it because we really haven't examined ourselves. But my suspicion is that there are some things in our hearts and mind that God wants to strip us of, that God wants to break. That there may be moments this week, if you really take that seriously and you really discuss with God and you sit down and you consider your heart, you consider the scriptures and you consider who God is, that there may be some hard moments this week as you think about your sin and, and what it's been doing to you and how it's been confusing you and misleading you. And so my encouragement to you this week is to really dig into that journal and dig in with your community, with your home group, and just ask the question, God, what does it look like for me to strip off everything that I have and walk into the wilderness and for you to begin to restore me, right? For you to bring life, to bring the vineyards back, to bring the joy back, to bring the hope back. That's my hope for this week as we, as we, prepare our hearts and minds to just dig into unfiltered raw Jesus is that we would take a second this week and just ask God, okay, God, what do you want to show me about where I, what I've been worshiping, where I've been running to? God, will you bring the vineyards back? Will you, will you bring the forest back? 